0: Hello and welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. The COVID-19 pandemic has magnified issues such as inequality, climate change and created political instability that can only be addressed by multilateral consensus in politics and business. Today we'll explore how we can develop models that deliver strong economic growth that ensure prosperity and wellbeing for the global population while also protecting and nurturing the planet. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Professor Rebecca Henderson. Rebecca is the John and Natty MacArthur University Professor at Harvard University and teaches the Reimagining Capitalism course at Harvard Business School. Her research focuses on the role the private sector can play in building a more sustainable economy, particularly how purpose-driven firms can help rebalance capitalism. Her most recent book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, was recently shortlisted for the Financial Times McKinsey Business Book of the Year. Please note this conversation was recorded in May 2020. Rebecca, welcome, great to have you with us today.
1: Greg, thanks for having me, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Thanks so much, Rebecca, uh, we're delighted to have you. Um, so, so first question, um, there's so much talk now about things going back to, to normal. Um, Do you think there will be a normal again, or is is the pandemic going to really lead to some fundamental shifts in the way that the business is done?
1: I hope it leads to fundamental shifts. I don't want to go back to our old normal. Yeah. If normal means going to a restaurant or being able to give a friend a hug, I'm all for it. I want that normal back so (laughs) much I can hardly say. But in terms of the way business is done, I don't want to go back to what we have. I don't want to go back to accelerating inequality, to ignoring the problem of climate change, to systematically undermining the institutions of government. I don't think we were going in a good direction. I think the pandemic is a fantastic opportunity to really step back and say, look, what are we about? Where are we going? What do we care about? I'm hoping to do something quite different on the other side.
0: And do you think that there, from what you've seen, and and I'm sure you're in touch with many large organizations, is there an appetite for this?
1: It's mixed. Life is tough right now. To a first approximation, firms are either running absolutely flat out or sort of not running at all, and those are both hard.
0: Mm.
1: But my experience is that there's a real appetite for a conversation about systemic change. What the pandemic has done is really highlight what's wrong. When you see people unable to stop working despite the fact that they're sick, uh, people have no sick leave, when you see that so many people have no savings, and for people like us, it's okay to shelter in place, no problem, we have savings, we have healthcare, but there are what? roughly half the population that has almost no savings, Mm -hmm. a disturbing fraction here in the US that doesn't have healthcare. And and these are who? These are the essential workers. These are the people who are delivering our packages, who are manning the grocery stores, who are picking our food. I, I think it's become very clear that something is wrong. And that's given people a real interest in like, whoa, Does it have to be this way? Couldn't we do things differently?
0: So really, the pandemic has, and the the impact of that, have acted as like a magnifier of of inequality. We we can now see the uh, inequality that exists, particularly, interestingly enough, in Western democracies where where we'd always sort of thought maybe that that we do have more resilience and that the the wealth is uh, maybe more evenly spread. Do you think that this has really become, uh, become something of a surprise to, to to, to many people and to many organizations as to really how fragile things are.
1: Yes, I think it is surprising. I think those of us that were doing well looked at the enormous innovation and creativity and productivity that our societies were generating, Mm. the gleaming cities and the wonderful gizmos, and forgot or chose not to see Mm -hmm. or hoped that it wasn't as bad as we feared. Mm -hmm. I mean, as humans, we're really good at avoiding going to the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, the things we don't look at are are myriad. And I think when you're part of a society that appears to be working well, it it doesn't pay to look too hard. And so we didn't.
0: Right. We turned our eyes away. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Food was being delivered and we were getting, cheap products from china and uh, uh the social cost for these things i think maybe was was largely ignored um if, if we're maybe some, just have a look at this now from the position of um, perspective i should say of governments um, we've seen enormous bailouts every western economy uh, uk us really significant amounts of money being spent by governments do you think that a future government um either in the uk or us or, or maybe elsewhere can can really ever argue again for supply-side economics, lowering taxes, decreasing regulation? Do you think that's now a kind of economics that's going to be consigned to the past?
1: Oh, I wish I agreed with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm with you. I think at the current moment saying, let's deregulate, let's rely on the supply side, seems bananas. Yeah. I hope it never comes up again but I don't want to underestimate the power of those for whom it was very much in their own interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, right here in the US, the president announced that because of the pandemic, he was going to stop all environmental regulation enforcement, like Mm -hmm. say what? I mean, this is at a time when we know that those whose lungs are weakened often by air pollution are more susceptible to suffering from COVID. Mm. So let's just roll back the regulations. I mean, is that crazy or what? Mm-hmm. But I mention it because it's happening. Yeah. So we're dealing with a perspective and an ideology that I think is very strongly entrenched. The good news, however, is that the pandemic has really shown us how vital having a strong well-managed capable transparent government is and how vital appropriate regulation is Mm -hmm. i think the pandemic has made the concept of public good and effective public response really tangible and real in a way that oh my goodness i hope stays with us the the obvious analogy is to climate change right We don't need to think about it. It's a long way away. It's never going to happen. We were warned about pandemics. People have been jumping up and down saying we need to be ready for a while. And we've been warned about climate change. But somehow we thought, well, it'll, we'll deal with it later. It'll be okay when it happens. And in the meantime, government and regulation are dirty words. And I really hope we move beyond that. I think it's essential that we move beyond that.
0: Sure. And I'd love to get your view on taxation as well. Most of the large tech companies paying minimal corporate tax at the moment. Do you think that'll change in the coming years? I do.
1: I think we will have a much richer conversation about who needs to pay how much tax. Hmm. The fact that so much of the gains... The fact that so much of the economic gains of the last 10 and 20 years have gone to the people at the very top of the distribution. Mm. I mean, that's okay In some ways, if you think about capitalism at its best, inequality is a feature, not a bug. Mm. But when it gets so out of balance that the people at the very top can basically begin to control the political system, when it gets so out of balance that the people at the bottom think they have no hope and social Mm -hmm. mobility is going away, like something is wrong. I think taxes are a huge part of the solution to that. I don't think they're the only one. I don't think we can tax our way to the end of inequality. I think we need to think extraordinarily hard about good jobs and where they come from and education and healthcare, and and so on and so forth. So we need to think about the supply side too. But yes, I think the large successful companies and those of us who make really a good living are going to pay more tax.
0: And and there's obviously going to be some very stark political choices to make in terms of paying for the bailouts. And this is going to be, we're going to be paying for this for a long time. How do you think about this? How can we make this equitable? How can we drive economic growth, but also make sure that, that no one is left behind?
1: The good news, perhaps, is that if we make the right kinds of investments with the bailout, mm-hmm. trade-off between the bailout and future growth may not be as great as, as we fear. Okay. You know, there's a degree to which the bailout really could be investment. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Let's make sure that those people who don't have access to the internet have access. Let's make sure that kids who need laptops have laptops. Mm. Let's make sure that people who don't have access to adequate schooling have access. Those are all investments we can make right now to change people's lives right now, that will make a difference. Now you're mm-hmm. saying to me, "Well, that's small, Rebecca. Small at the low end. So how about really a massive Green New Deal, please,
0: mm-hmm.
1: sensibly designed, investing in green infrastructure, in um, making sure our houses are properly heated and properly insulated, in giving people jobs, in rebuilding what we know we need, which is a, glee- a green, clean economy. I mean." that would pay for itself in reduced health care costs, sure. <laughs> you know?
0: sure. So
1: let alone the jobs that are generated and the fact that it would generate power for a long time. I mean, so I think we can be sensible about the bailout. Now, that said, of course, there are people hurting that we're going to have to write checks to. Those aren't investments. That's bringing spending, you know, that's pulling spending back to now. That's going into debt to make sure that people have what they need. Super important. I think it's really important not to let the serious debt we're going to come out of the crisis with, to be an excuse though, for cutting back on the investments we need to, not, we need to make to take care of people at the bottom.
0: Right, and, and we've, we've, we've seen the beginning of this towards the end of last year, you know, business round table talking about creating value for employees and customers rather than just shareholders, you know, BlackRock talking about decarbonizing its, its portfolio is that really just going to be accelerated maybe by this, 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 um, um, pandemic or do you think that a lot of businesses are just going to think we need to protect our core. We cannot make those investments at this moment.
1: I don't think business needs to make the choice. Mm -hmm. It really is the case that doing the right thing is often the best thing for the business. And in fact, I don't think businesses should do stuff if it's just over here, it's just philanthropy, hey, we're doing the best for our community. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of that for sure. But the core and the heart of the argument that I try and make in my book is that taking care of your workers, treating them with dignity and respect, giving them decent pay, giving them sick leave, giving them training, empowering them to do their jobs, that increases productivity and creativity and innovation. I think we Mm. have really good data to suggest that you don't have to make that trade off. Mm. Some businesses you do, sometimes it makes sense to manage the old fashioned take numbers, take names, push things to the bottom kind of way. But I think we have lots of evidence that in industries going all the way from manufacturing to retail, there's a different way to run things which is really good for inequality.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've I've been looking at some data and polling data um, here in the UK that um, the number one um, um, question that that, um, consumers have about brands and companies is how did they treat their workforce during the pandemic, which I thought was really interesting. Do you think that um, many CEOs are going to be aware of the fact that they're having to make ethical choices as well as business decisions here?
1: Absolutely. I don't think their employees will let them forget. And I don't think their customers will let them forget.
0: Yeah. So it's like a personal wake up call on on all kinds of issues around climate change, around inequality.
1: It, It really is. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the same stories I have. But CEOs saying, you know, I had no idea how hard it was to spend all day at home with two children, two small children. You know, I've heard colleagues and managers saying that and saying, you know, I'm going to think differently about how I sure, think about work sure. life, how I the think about is, schedule th- stability. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, my worry about this though, is that there is, that there will be a lot of rhetoric from business leaders on, and organizations on being, you know, purpose driven. How can we best measure this? How can we kind of, you know, create indexes? How do we keep people honest fundamentally about, you know, what they're saying they will do in terms of the action they're going to take?
1: We need to change the accounting systems. Mm -hmm. We need to put in place really well-thought-through, sensible measures of how people treat their employees, how they prepare for climate change, how they think about the long term. It's not going to be easy. There's a lot of talk about ESG, environmental, social, and governance measures, which are the kind of thing I'm thinking about, and it will take a while to get the right ones in place. But my friends in accounting remind me that it took us a hundred years to put financial accounting in place mm. that in the thirties, when P and G published their annual report, it said, literally, this still blows me away in, you know, last year we made revenue of $360,000 and profits of $20,000. I'm making the money up. Mm. Um, I'm making the numbers up. And then it said shareholders who'd like further information should apply to the headquarters in Cincinnati in person. So, you know, we take for granted the nature of modern, modern accounting, but we need exactly that kind of investment and push on these other kinds of metrics, because otherwise, as you say, business is going to be able to say, oh, I'm doing everything for my workforce. Life is good. Yeah. You want to be able to measure. You want to be able to track. Apart from anything else, we know that what gets measured matters, right? That's what drives organizational change.
0: I'm interested, you mentioned the government earlier, earlier on in the conversation, um, what, obviously the response has been fairly, fairly muddled in some, in some countries, what lessons can we take from this crisis in terms of the way that we've seen governments handle it? Um, and I'm thinking about how we apply this maybe to some kind of coordinated response to the climate crisis.
1: It's been really striking how some governments have dealt much more effectively with the crisis than others.
0: Mm.
1: I think what the crisis has highlighted is both the importance of being prepared, but also the importance of being able to nationally mobilize to address the issue. In the US, the spectacle of the federal government being so late to really start to take this seriously, the huge delay in rolling out testing, watching states bid against each other for vital medical equipment rather than having a centrally coordinated federal effort at a kind of war scale. And, and looking at how different that is from countries like, say, Germany or South Korea which are already starting to reopen. I think that makes very clear that we need a government that works, a government that has the legitimacy and the support to be able to put in place the kinds of measures we
0: need. Um, And how do you think we can apply that to the climate crisis, those kinds of learnings?
1: (laughs) I thought you were going to ask me that. (laughs) So (laughs) as we think about climate, we have two big issues the first is that it's expensive right now for benefits later so i think one of the big learnings coming out of the pandemic is that it's worth buying a little insurance it's worth spending a little bit now because it's going to get really really bad and that can happen quickly and we're not going to like it Mm-hmm. And I think we're helped in that by the fact that, A, the pandemic happened and happened really quickly. But B, let's not forget that climate change is actually happening right now. Mm-hmm. When you see the fires in California and in Australia last summer, when we remember that Houston had three 500-year floods in a three-year period, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the uh, damage that climate change is causing is already visible. But I'm hoping... What, uh, what we'll take away from this is government must prepare and must take the lead in preparing, that the right kinds of policies, the right kinds of measures now can make all the difference. The second thing I hope that we learn from the crisis is that we are a community. Yeah. I know I know this sounds so kind of puppies and kittens, but I think we had got into the habit before the pandemic of really Getting very comfortable focusing on me right now. You know, it's about me. It's about right now. Someone else will deal with other problems. And I hope what this pandemic has done is make it quite clear that it really is about us, Mm -hmm. that we really are interdependent, that we really can't ignore what's happening elsewhere in the world. And that means global cooperation.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's what we need to deal with climate change. Yeah. We need to think ourselves of ourselves as an integrated world where we can't escape, where some bug that happens somewhere else, you know, oh, why do I care about that? You really care about that. And similarly, oh, you know, something they're doing, building coal plants in China, why do I care about that? You really care about that.
0: Mm-hmm. You care
1: when the forests go down in uh, Brazil. And we have a joint destiny here. Mm. So I know this is aspirational. I told you this was what I was hoping, but I really think the pandemic might help us begin to think about global cooperation in a different way.
0: One of the areas I think that we, we can touch on is, is the idea of these t- time frames. Obviously, g- climate change and global warming, it's, it's very hard for human beings to actually understand those kind of period, time periods because it, it's not immediate. It's not something that we're experiencing at this, this moment. Um, although, although I have to say your, your examples obviously are very, very pertinent. Do you think that maybe there's a um, a, a parallel almost with the market? So publicly traded companies are on this carousel of quarterly earnings reports. Um, Is there a way that we can start being more focused on the long term? Are there any organizations that are really thinking long term rather than just, you know, the next uh, quarterly earnings report?
1: There are a bunch of people thinking about how to move us to the long term. Mm. The CEOs themselves would love to get off the quarterly carousel. They hate it. Mm. They want to make investments in research, in equipment, in their people, in their customers that will pay back over a year, two, three, four, five years. Mm this is where the key, the measures become so important. They have to be able to persuade their investors that the investments they're making now will pay out. So if you're Amazon and you're Jeff Bezos, you can persuade the stock market to give you 10 years of losses. So one of the reasons we need these new metrics, these ESG metrics, is so that I as a CEO can turn to my investors and say, I mean it when I say I'm investing in my people and my training. Look at the measures. I mean it when I say I'm building up brand equity by doing the right thing. Look at my relationships with my customers and the value of my brand. I mean it when I say, and so on. So part of this focus on ESG is very much about moving us to a long-term focus. The other effort I see going on, which is really exciting, is an explicit attempt to be aware that it is about more than focusing just on the short term. Mm. I think we've almost let ourselves get stuck in a mindset that somehow thinking about the longer term is not what real managers do, thinking about people is like not what you know I do, I'm about the bottom line, I'm about the current numbers. And I think part of it is an ideological shift, because I actually believe there's a lot of money lying on the floor. Right. To the degree that managers can make this switch, there's really good news out there. And we see organizations like Long Term Capital, um, Center for Higher Ambition Leadership, a Blueprint for a Better Business, all these organizations basically getting CEOs together and saying, look, there's another way to manage and you will enjoy it more, and your investors will like it more, but it requires focusing on the longer term.
0: Is, is it in some ways a, almost like a messaging that needs to be out there, but this isn't a negative thing, like thinking about climate change, thinking about uh, inequality, it's about opportunity and it's about being able to sort of reinvent and build new kinds of goods, uh, you know, sorry, new kinds of products, new kinds of services. How, how can that, how, how do you think that narrative can be, can be tweaked? Because I think at the moment there still is this sense that uh, investing in the, these, kinds of, these kinds of issues is somehow, you know, not the best way to, to, to invest capital.
1: Partly it's a matter of telling better stories yeah. There are fabulous stories out there. I, um, I teach a case about Walmart's tea business, and it's about a man called Michael Ligents and uh, Michelle Ligents. Michelle came into the tea business as a marketing guy, not terribly senior. He looked around and he said, you know, this business is not sustainable. I mean, literally, the way we're growing tea means 20, 30 years ago, from now, there won't be any tea. And, you know, we're not paying our people anything. And the people who pick the tea, they can't educate their kids and they have horrible diseases. And what are we thinking? And Unilever was selling 30% of the world's branded tea. So he went to his uh, his senior managers and he said, you know, we should sell sustainable tea. And the senior people said, Michelle, what are you saying? That means increasing our costs by 20%. Go down until, go and lie down until the feeling goes away. (laughs) When I teach this case, I, I look at everyone in the room and I say, well, what do you think? And everyone says, well, like it's, you have to increase your costs by 20%. You can't charge customers more because in branded tea, they won't pay more for a differentiated product. It's really a commodity business. He should lie down until the feeling goes away. And I say, well, okay, let's, let's do some more thinking about that. Let's think about that. What Michelle did is he went back to the tea plantations. He went back to the people on the ground and he said, how do we make this happen? And he discovered that if you started to grow the tea sustainably, yields dramatically increased. Yeah. That you could pay people more that you could get the Dutch NGO to roll out that training to thousands of smallholders across Kenya and Tanzania and dramatically increase yields. So that was good. Mm. He discovered that, yes, it was true, consumers wouldn't pay more for sustainably branded tea. But if you persuaded them that you were doing the right thing, they would shift their purchasing behavior, Mm. that they would shift to your brand. And so his share of market started going up. In Australia, they nearly doubled their share of market. In the UK, a viciously competitive market, may I say, when it comes to selling tea, they increased share of market by two or three percentage points. That doesn't sound like much. That's an enormous amount that paid for, that paid for the increase in cost.
0: Yeah.
1: So it, it's about having the vision and the creativity and the drive to go out there and look for these business models. I mean, everybody talks about Elon Musk, right? Well, that's for a good reason. People thought he was crazy. Now he's built a great business and begun the transformation of the electric vehicle industry. Think about Impossible Meat. If I had told you three years ago that the most successful IPO in the US in 20 years would be a plant-based meat company, you would have told me I was crazy. <laughs> so, No, really. Um, I think about this as the world's Kodak moment. Mm-hmm. Are, you, uh, are you familiar with Kodak moments?
0: I am. I am. Yes. So I'm
1: particularly familiar with Kodak Moments because I used to be the Kodak professor at MIT. Oh, wow. That was a coincidence, but a deeply ironic coincidence because my whole research agenda was about studying firms who are having trouble changing. Mm. So, for example, I worked with Nokia when they were trying to respond to Apple. And indeed, I worked with Kodak, you know, as they were trying to shift to digital photography. Now, Kodak was once one of the world's most profitable companies. They used to say of them, there's nothing more profitable that's legal. And yet, they could not get it together to move to digital photography. And I think what we're facing is like the world's Kodak moment. So we know we need to change. We know things are going to be different. But right now, right here, ah, it's not going to happen right away. There really isn't money. I'm really busy. Would you go away? I spent 20 years studying that problem. It's normal. So in a way, I'm trying to cheer you up. (laughs) Really, (laughs) This is quite normal. You know, it's easy to say we need to decarbonize the world's economy. We need to change how we think about managing people go. But I spent 20 years telling firms that really apple is a big deal you should do something different (laughs) i know how hard it is for big firms to change so i think the secret lies in the stories and the other place the secret lies is in entrepreneurs we haven't talked about entrepreneurs but i think that's where the action is going to come nothing drives a change in the system like small firms making a difference showing it can be done building new business models I think we can see that on the ground. I mean, this last couple of years, I've had waves of amazing people in my office telling me, you know, we could do X. And mostly X sounds completely loopy to me, like we're going to put barcodes on the size of tuna fish and use blockchains to really control the supply chain. And and what I've learned is I have no ear for what's loopy and what's totally visionary.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So I'm sorry I, I got into a rant, but, no. but I, really, I think it's happening. It, it's it's here.
0: Let's talk about entrepreneurs. For for for, for uh, we're, we are kind of getting towards the end of our time. But I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on entrepreneurs. You know, there's been so many businesses, startups uh, over the last sort of few years that have been thinking really about sort of scaling, and they've been using you know regulatory arbitrage. You know, a lot of cheap capital out there, sort of cheap labor to sort of like just grow, 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 but with huge amounts of debt. Do you think that era is is coming to an end now and we're going to be looking to you know see startups that are actually either, you know, have have a purpose but also a delivering profit as well.
1: Yes, I do. And the reason I think that is because of the way my students have changed. Mm. I've been teaching MBAs for 30 years. Mm. 30 years ago, if I'd walked into the classroom and started talking about purpose, they would have carried me out. That's a joke. Not really. But it just wasn't something we talked about. It was about, hey, let's make the money. And I think for all kinds of reasons of which the pandemic is one, but the enormous potential catastrophic risk of climate is another. And the idea that people are fundamentally disposable those are making younger people crazy. More than half of people under 25 say they don't believe in capitalism. No. Probably what they mean is they believe in universal health care and treating people decently rather than the state ownership of the means of production. But, you know, there's so much anger. The perception that people like me have burnt through the world to make ourselves money leaving a broken social system and a broken planet to the people who come next, that's like crazy. And so I'm very hopeful that we'll see a new wave of entrepreneurs really focusing in this area. Now, I'm also realistic. We need government to act because those bad business models, they made a lot of money for the people who initiated them. So we're going to need regulation and taxation to make sure that running those kinds of business models is not profitable. I don't want to be Pollyanna here, (laughs) but I think if we do that, if we have that one-two punch, which is entrepreneurs moving and the right regulation to stop bad business models going, that's going to take us really a long way
0: so give us a, a um, maybe a final qu- a final answer um, I'd love to just get your thoughts on whether, whether we're talking about entrepreneurs or whether we're talking about business leaders but what action points would you advise any leader you know in any organization to consider in the coming years ju- just to really not just think about you know climate inequality which are imp- very important but also growing the business as well at the same time what, what are the key areas that they need to be thinking about
1: three key ideas
0: mm-hmm.
1: first take the environmental stuff seriously mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: my guess is that there are people in your firm right now thinking about it and wanting you to do things yeah. and all the research suggests that the you can cut energy use by 25 30 percent and make yourself a 16 17 percent R O R. yeah so really focus on the environment it will do great things Uh, for your brand, uh, depending on what business you're in, but it will certainly save your money. Second thing, think about the way you're treating your people. Mm. Zainat Ton at MIT has this wonderful institute called the Good Jobs Institute. Really persuasive evidence that giving people good jobs, leading with authentic purpose, being clear about the purpose of the firm. It's not just about making money for shareholders. It never was. It's about building a prosperous, thriving society, creating great jobs. If you can communicate that and get on that wavelength, I promise you, you will see improvements in productivity and innovation like you would not believe. Mm. And Zainab can help you get there. So that's a place to go if you really want to explore this.
0: I have asked her to speak at wild events in the past. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> she's
1: fantastic. She's just fantastic. Sorry, can't avoid giving her a plug. She's just so great. Um, last but not least, the political stuff is important. If you're going to do the right thing, you're going to make money and bring your customers and your employees with you. Fabulous. But you need government regulation to make sure the bottom feeders can't keep undercutting you. We need decent environmental regulation. For sure, we need a price for carbon, please. Um, This is a catastrophic risk to the security of the financial system and the physical system. You need a price for carbon. Join with other business leaders to push for it. Uh, We need a strong government if we're going to have a strong capitalism and a healthy society. So those are your three things, right? One, take the environmental stuff seriously. There's money there. Two, think about treating your people differently. You're going to enjoy it, the company will thrive. And third, yes, government is important. Business has a really important role to play as a united voice for focusing on the long-term and the good of the entire society.
0: One final question, Rebecca, I can't help myself. Do you remain optimistic that we can reinvent capitalism?
1: Optimism implies, oh, for sure, this is going to happen, no worries. I'm not optimistic like that. Okay. But I am hopeful. Mm-hmm. You know, hope is a theological virtue. In the faith tradition I was brought up in, you have to hope. It's a duty.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're in a very tough spot. We live on a complicated planet with all kinds of things going on. But do I think we can do this? Absolutely, I do. We have the resources, we have the technology. There's a very strong business case. And humans are smart. Absolutely, I think we can, we can build a just and sustainable society.
0: Well, that's a terrific note to end on. We could all do with a little bit of hope right now. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for all your insight. It was absolutely terrific having you. Uh, Reimagining Capitalism is already published in the US and is in, out in the UK in September, I believe. It's um,
1: out in the UK as an e-book right now.
0: As in the UK, as an ebook book right now, and then in, in a physical book in September, I believe. That's they. right. Right. Um, thank you to everyone watching the session. If you enjoyed today, please do uh, have a look at the rest of the Foresight series. We've uh, got sessions up already with trust expert Rachel Botsman, uh, the world's most watched virtual surgeon Shafi Ahmed, and the co authors of The Squiggly Career, Sarah Ellis and Helen Tupper. You can watch them all at wired.co.uk. In the meantime, thank you, Rebecca. Uh, stay well, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thank
1: you very much. Take care.